Time now for Connecting the Diocese. Connecting the Diocese is a production of the Diocese of La Crosse. Here's host Jack Silsha. Thank you so much for tuning in, Connecting the Diocese. Before we get down to the serious business of the hour, I must report on the latest in the outrage department. The uh, various media that like to make up outrage are now focusing their outrage on M&M plain chocolate candies. It seems that M&M plain chocolate candies are now featuring three of their M&M characters on the current packaging, and they're all female. It was kind of a you-go girl for women in various positions that formerly were much more male-dominated. Some people got upset with this idea. Others got upset with the fact that on several of the M&M characters on this same package, they changed the style of their shoes, particularly green M&Ms. She went from, I think, high heels to uh, wearing athletic shoes. And people are going, this, this is an outrage. This simply can't be. My concern is not on what's on the outside of the package, what's on the inside. Sometimes you see three M&M figures on the outside and you figure that's how many you get for your $1.19. We'll be right back after this. So here I am making jokes about the cost of M&M's, and the serious thing is that you go to a convenience store, and they have a special sale on eggs at $4.99 a dozen. Things are getting expensive right now. It's managing to get into all of our lives. Between the cost of putting more heating oil in our house tank, the house insurance, which always seems to come to right about Christmas time, and the ever-increasing cost of electric power, even though we keep turning stuff off left and right all over the place, Things are getting expensive. Not out of control yet for us, but expensive. For some people in the Diocese of La Crosse, this expensive increase of everything has really bit down hard. Maybe not you, maybe some relatives, maybe some neighbors, maybe just some people you know of from church. This is why it's very important that, number one, you don't duck your head in the sand and hope it all is going to go away. One of the best things you can do, if you know somebody who is really, as they say, upside down, there's more more outgo than income, is to have them make an appointment to talk to the folks at Catholic Charities for an absolutely free, no obligation, no one's going to look down at you, no one's going to go tisk tisk tisk. Look at your finances helping you do some budgeting, helping you perhaps contact some of the places that are getting a little nervous about how much you owe so you can kind of level things out. You can tell them there is no dishonor in this. There are thousands of people in the same boat they are in right now. The difference is that they can go and get some help at no charge and they can maybe sleep a little better at night. Have them go to cclse.org, the website for Catholic Charities, cclse.org, and find out how they can make an appointment to bring in some of their bills and some of their check stubs and things, and they can help get it straightened out, and everybody will have a much more pleasant winter as we move in towards better times. Catholic Charities, cclse.org. Right about the time for the funeral for Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, I had a good conversation with Bishop Callahan, the Bishop of the Diocese of La Crosse. One of the many things we talked about was how Pope Benedict was such a scholar, and I asked him about, well, what he had written. Let me just play this little clip, and this will kind of explain more of it. I'm going to ask you how many books he wrote. I don't expect you to know the exact number, but he wrote a pile of yeah, them. He did indeed, and I, and I think that they're up there. I think he did break the hundred mark. It's unbelievable, and I, I, I frankly, I'm embarrassed. I can't say that I have. I'm familiar with any of the titles. Are, are there any ones that you personally said, oh "My gosh, this is great"? The series of the Jesus of Nazareth books, absolutely phenomenal. They were challenging intellectually. They were spiritually uplifting. 
the depth of his command of the language. Oh, it was, it was amazing. He is a man of incredible talent. So when you, when you start wanting to read something, that's it. You, know, you go to Jesus of Nazareth, which I believe was his crowning achievement. Over the years, periodically, when an encyclical has come out or some kind of papal letter or some other thing of great importance, we have taken the time out to, uh, to read it on the air because people don't always read these things or they hear about them and don't know where to find them. Now, by no means did I have any intention of reading the entire book that Pope Benedict wrote. I mean, on the air. This is not a chapter a day. But I've been looking at the first book that he wrote back in 2006, the first part of Jesus of Nazareth, and there's some wonderful, wonderful things that give you not only an idea of how he was thinking, but a whole different way of, of approaching the whole topic of Jesus. And maybe we'll encourage you to go out and get a copy and read it as well. Again, uh, these are excerpts from the Pope's book. These are not me talking. And also, there will not be any commentary about them that I have to say. I may just tell you the Pope says this as we skip ahead to another paragraph. But aside from that, I'm not going to sit there and try to analyze this book. In the first place, it speaks for itself. And number two, this is the Bishop Show, not the Jack Socia Analysis Show. So we're just going to read it to you, and you can enjoy it yourself and maybe think more about it. We start with excerpts from the foreword of the book, Jesus of Nazareth, written by Pope Emeritus Benedict Sixteenth. This book is about Jesus, the first part of which I am now presenting to the public has had a long gestation. When I was growing up in the 1930s and 40s, there was a series of inspiring books about Jesus. All of these books based on their portrayal of Jesus Christ on the gospel. They presented him as a man living on earth who, fully human though he was, at the same time brought God to men, the God with whom as son he was one. Through the man Jesus, then, God was made visible, and hence our eyes were made able to behold the perfect man. But the situation started to change in the 1950s. The gap between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith grew wider, and the two visibly fell apart. But what can faith in Jesus as the Christ possibly mean? In Jesus as the Son of the living God, if the man Jesus was so completely different from the picture that the evangelist painted of him and that the church, on the evidence of the Gospels, takes as a basis for her preaching. As historical critical scholarship advanced, it led to finer and finer distinctions between layers of tradition in the Gospels, beneath which the real object of faith, the figure of Jesus, became increasingly obscured and blurred. At the same time, though, the reconstruction of this Jesus, who could only be discovered by going behind the traditions and sources used by the evangelists, became more and more incompatible with one another. At one end of the spectrum, Jesus was the anti-Roman revolutionary working, though finally failing, to overthrow the ruling powers. At the other end, he was the meek moral teacher who approves everything and unaccountably comes to grief. If you read a number of these reconstructions, one after another, you see at once that far from uncovering an icon that has become obscured over time, they are much more like photographs of their authors and the ideals they hold. Since then, there has been a growing skepticism about these portrayals of Jesus, but the figure of Jesus himself has for that very reason receded even further into the distance. All these attempts have produced a common result, 
the impression that we have very little certain knowledge of Jesus, and that only at a later stage did faith in his divinity shape the image we have of him. This impression has by now penetrated deeply into the minds of the Christian people at large. This is a dramatic situation for faith, because its point of reference is being placed in doubt. Intimate friendship with Jesus, on which everything depends, is in danger of clutching at thin air. Rudolf Schneckenberg was probably the most prominent Catholic writing in German during the second half of the 20th century. It is clear that towards the end of his life, this crisis surrounding the faith made a profound impression on him. In view of the inadequacy of all the portrayals of the historical Jesus offered by recent exegesis, he strove to produce one last great work, Jesus and the Gospels, a biblical Christology. The book is intended to help believing Christians, quote, who today have been made insecure by scientific research and critical discussion so that they may hold fast to faith in the person of Jesus Christ as the bringer of salvation and savior of the world, unquote. At the end of the book, Snockenberg sums up the result of a lifetime of scholarship. Quote, a reliable view of the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth through scientific effort and historical critical methods can be only inadequately achieved. The efforts of scientific exegesis to examine these traditions and trace them back to what was historically credible draw us into a continual discussion of tradition and the redaction history that never comes to rest. His own account of the figure of Jesus suffers from a certain unresolved tension because of the constraints of the method he feels bound to use, despite its inadequacies. Snackenberg shows us the gospel's image of Christ, but he considers it to be the product of manifold layers of tradition through which the real Jesus could only be glimpsed from afar. He writes, quote, The historical ground is presupposed, but it is superseded in the faith view of the evangelists. Now, no one doubts that. What remains unclear is how far the historical ground actually extends. That said, Snackenberg does clearly throw into relief the decisive point which he regards as the genuinely historical insight, Jesus' relatedness to God and his closeness to God. Without anchoring in God, the person of Jesus remains shadowy, unreal, and unexplainable. This is also the point around which I will construct my own book. It sees Jesus in light of his communion with the Father, which is the true center of his personality. Without it, we cannot understand him at all, and it is from this center that he makes himself present to us still today. To be sure, in the particular contours of my own presentation of Jesus, I make a determined effort to go beyond Snackenberg. The problem with Snackenberg's account of the relationship between New Testament tradition and historical events stands out very clearly for me when he writes that the Gospels, quote, want, as it were, to clothe with flesh the mysterious Son of God who appeared on earth. I would like to say in response that they did not need to clothe him with flesh because he had already truly taken flesh. Of course, the question remains, can this flesh be accessed through the dense jungle of traditions? Pope Benedict continues in his foreword, I would like to sketch at least the broad outlines of the methodology drawn from these documents that has guided me in writing this book. The first point is that the historical critical method, specifically because of the intrinsic nature of theology and faith, is and remains an indispensable dimension of exegetical work. For it is with the very essence of biblical faith to be about real historical events. 
It does not tell stories symbolizing suprahistorical truth. It does not tell stories symbolizing suprahistorical truths, but is based on history, history that took place here on Earth. The historical fact is not an interchangeable symbolic cipher for biblical faith, but a foundation on which it stands. When we say these words, we acknowledge God's actual entry into real history. If we push this history aside, Christian faith as such disappears and is recast as some other religion. So if history is an essential dimension of Christian faith, then faith must expose itself to the historical method. Indeed, faith itself demands this. The historical critical method, let me repeat, is an indispensable tool given the structure of Christian faith. But we need to add two points. This method is a fundamental dimension of exegesis, but it does not exhaust the interpretive task for someone who sees the biblical writings as a single corpus of Holy Scripture inspired by God. We will have to return to this point at a greater length in a moment. For the time being, it is important, and this is a second point, to recognize the limits of the historical critical method itself. For someone who considers himself directly addressed by the Bible today, the method's first limit is that by its very nature it has to leave the biblical word in the past. It is a historical method, and that means that it investigates the then-current context of events in which the texts originated. It attempts to identify and to understand the past, as it was in itself, with the greatest possible precision in order then to find out what the author could have said and intended to say in the context of the mentality and the events of the time. To the extent that it remains true to itself, the historical method not only has to investigate the biblical word as a thing of the past, but also has to let it remain in the past. It can glimpse points of contact with the present, and it can try to apply the biblical word to the present. The one thing it cannot do is make it into something present today. That would be overstepping its bounds. Its very precision in interpreting the reality of the past is both its strength and its limit. This is connected with a further point. Because it is an historical method, it presupposes the uniformity of the context within which the events of history unfold. It must therefore treat the biblical words it investigates as human words. On painstaking reflection, it can intuit something of a deeper value the word contains. It can, in some sense, catch the sounds of a higher dimension through the human word, and so open the method to self-transcendence. But its specific object is the human word as human. The Pope continues, We have to keep in mind the limit of all efforts to know the past. We can never go beyond the domain of hypothesis, because we simply cannot bring the past into the present. To be sure, some hypotheses enjoy a high degree of certainty, but overall we need to remain conscious of the limit of our certainties. Indeed, the history of modern exegesis makes this limit perfectly evident. So far, then, we have said something about the importance of the historical-critical method on one hand, and we have described its limits on the other. Something more than just the limit has come into view, though, I hope. The fact that the inner nature of the method points beyond itself and contains within itself an openness to complementary methods. 
In these words from the past, we can discern the question concerning their meaning of today. A voice greater than man's echoes in the scripture's human words. The individual writings of the Bible point somehow to the living process that shapes one scripture. Modern exegesis has brought to light the process of constant rereading that forged the words transmitted in the Bible into scripture. Older texts are reappropriated, reinterpreted, and read with new eyes in new contexts. They become scripture by being read anew, evolving in continuity with their original sense, tacitly corrected and given added depth and breadth of meaning. This is the process in which the word gradually unfolds its inner potentialities, already somehow present like seeds, but needing the challenge of new situations, new experiences, and new sufferings in order to open up. This process is certainly not linear, and it is often dramatic. But when you watch it unfold in the light of Jesus Christ, you can see it moving in a single overall direction. You can see that the Old and New Testaments belong together. This Christological hermeneutic, which sees Jesus Christ as the key to the whole and learns from him how to understand the Bible as a unity, presupposes a prior act of faith. It cannot be the conclusion of a purely historical method. But this act of faith is based upon reason, historical reason, and so makes it possible to see the internal unity of the Scripture. By the same token, it enables us to understand anew the individual elements that have shaped it without robbing them of their historical originality. The Pope continues, This already suggests the second aspect I wanted to speak about. Neither the individual books of Holy Scripture nor the Scripture as a whole are simply a piece of literature. The Scripture emerged from within the heart of a living subject, the pilgrim people of God, and lives within the same subject. One could say that the books of Scripture involve three interacting subjects. First of all, there is the individual author or group of authors to whom we owe a particular scriptural text. But these authors are not autonomous writers in the modern sense. They form part of a collective subject, the people of God, from within whose heart and to whom they speak. Hence, this subject is actually the deeper author of the scriptures. And yet likewise, this people does not exist alone. Rather, it knows that it is led and is spoken to by God himself, who, through men and their humanity, is at the deepest level the one speaking. It goes without saying that this book is in no way an exercise of the magisterium, but it is solely an expression of my personal search for the face of the Lord. Everyone is free then to contradict me. I would only ask my readers for that initial goodwill without which there can be no understanding. This forward, of which I have only read a part, was written in Rome on the Feast of St. Jerome, the 30th of September, 2006. Now I'm going to read to you a little bit of the introduction and initial reflection on the mystery of Jesus. The book of Deuteronomy contains a promise that is completely different from the messianic hope expressed in the other books of the Old Testament. Yet it is of decisive importance for the understanding of the figure of Jesus. The object of this promise is not a king of Israel and a king of the world, a new David, in other words, but a new Moses, Moses himself, however, is interpreted as a prophet. The category prophet is seen here as something totally specific and unique in contrast to the surrounding religious world, something that Israel alone has in this particular form. 
This new and different element is a consequence of the uniqueness of the faith in God that was granted to Israel. In every age, man's questioning has focused not only on his ultimate origin, almost more than the obscurity of his beginnings. What preoccupies him is the hiddenness of the figure that awaits him. Man wants to tear aside the curtain. He wants to know what is going to happen so that he can avoid perdition and set out towards salvation. Religions do not aim merely to answer the questions about our providence. All religions try in one way or another to lift the veil of the future. They seem important precisely because they impart knowledge about what is to come and so show man the path he has to take to avoid coming to grief. This explains why practically all religions have developed ways of looking into the future. The Deuteronomy text we are considering mentions the different methods used by the people surrounding Israel to open a window onto the future. Quoting, When you come into the land in which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, a soothsayer, or an augur, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Unquote. The story of Saul's downfall shows how difficult it was, having renounced these things to hold firm and manage without them. Saul himself had tried to enforce this command and to banish sorcery from the land. But faced with the imminent prospect of a perilous battle with the Philistines, he can no longer bear God's silence, and he rides out to Endor to a woman who conjures the dead, asking her to summon the spirit of Samuel so as to offer him a glimpse of the future. If the Lord will not speak, then someone else will have to tear aside the veil that covers tomorrow. Chapter 18 of the book of Deuteronomy brands all of these ways of seizing control of the future as an abomination in God's eyes. It contrasts the use of soothsaying with the very different ways of Israel, the way of faith. It does this in the form of a promise, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Him you shall heed. Skipping ahead, Pope Benedict continues, and now we are told what set the first Moses apart, the unique and essential quality of this figure. He had conversed with the Lord face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, so he had spoken with God. The most important thing about the figure of Moses is neither all the miraculous deeds he is reported to have done, nor his many works and sufferings along the way from the house of bondage in Egypt through the desert to the threshold of the promised land. The most important thing is that he spoke with God as with a friend. This was the only possible springboard for his works. This was the only possible source of the law that was to show Israel the path through history. It now becomes perfectly clear that the prophet is not the Israelite version of the soothsayer, as is widely held at the time and as many so-called prophets considered themselves. On the contrary, the prophet is something quite different. His task is not to report on events of tomorrow or the next day in order to satisfy human curiosity or the human need for security. He shows us the face of God, and in doing so, he shows us the path that we have to take. The future of which he speaks reaches far beyond what people seek from soothsayers. He points out to the path to the true exodus, which consists in this. Among all the paths of history, the path to God is the true direction that we must seek and find. 
Prophecy, in this sense, is a strict corollary to Israel's monotheism. It is the translation of this faith into everyday life of a community before God and on the way to Him. Just in case you have just tuned in, Jack Sosha here with you, and I have not suddenly turned very profound. What I'm doing is reading excerpts from Pope Benedict's first book on Jesus of Nazareth, one that our own bishop, Bishop Callahan, has strongly recommended we take a look at. And I'm encouraging you by reading to you little bits of it to go pick up your own copy. What Pope Benedict has written in these books is by no means like the kind of person who, when you ask them what time it is, they tell you how to build a watch. This next section on the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount will give you a good idea of what I'm talking about when I say this is really good stuff. The Sermon on the Mount draws a comprehensive portrait of the right way to live. It aims to show us how to be a human being. We could sum up its fundamental insights by saying that man can be understood only in light of God, and that his life is made righteous only when he lives it in relation to God. But God is not some distant stranger. He shows us his face in Jesus. In what Jesus does and wills, we come to know the mind and the will of God himself. If being human is essentially about relation to God, it is clear that speaking with and listening to God is an essential part of it. This is why the Sermon on the Mount also includes a teaching about prayer. The Lord tells us how we are to pray. In Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's Prayer is preceded by a short catechesis on prayer. Its main purpose is to warn against false forms of prayer. Prayer must not be an occasion for showing off before others. It requires the discretion that is essential to a relation of love. God addresses every individual by a name that no one else knows, as Scripture tells us. God's love for each individual is totally personal and includes this mystery of a uniqueness that cannot be divulged to other human beings. This discretion, which is of the very essence of prayer, does not exclude prayer in common. The Our Father is itself a prayer uttered in the first-person plural, and it is only by becoming part of the we of God's children that we can reach up to Him beyond the limits of this world in the first place. And yet, this we awakens the inmost core of the person. In the act of prayer, the totally personal and communal must always pervade each other, as we will see more closely in our exposition of the Our Father. Just as in the relationship between man and woman, there is a totally personal dimension that requires a zone of discretion for its protection, though at the same time the relationship of the two in marriage and family by its very nature also includes public responsibility. So it is also in our relation to God. The we of the praying community and the utterly personal intimacy that can be shared only with God are closely interconnected. The other false form of prayer the Lord warns us against is the chatter, the verbiage that smothers the spirit. We're all familiar with the danger of reciting habitual formulas while our mind is somewhere else entirely. We're at our most attentive when we are driven by inmost need to ask God for something or are prompted by a joyful heart to thank Him for good things that have happened to us. Most importantly, though, Our relationship to God should not be confined to such momentary situations, but should be present as the bedrock of our soul. In order for that to happen, this relation has to be constantly revived, and the affairs of our everyday lives have to be constantly related back to it. The more the depths of our soul are directed towards God, the better we will be able to pray. 
The more prayer is the foundation that upholds our entire existence. The more we become men of peace, the more we can bear pain, the more we will be able to understand others and open ourselves to them. This orientation pervasively shaping our whole consciousness, this silent presence of God at the heart of our thinking, our meditating, and our being, is what we mean by prayer without ceasing. This is ultimately what we mean by love of God, which is at the same time the condition and the driving force behind love of neighbor. This is what prayer really is. Being in silent inward communion with God, it requires nourishment, and that is why we need articulated prayer in words and images and thoughts. The more God is present in us, the more we will really be able to be present to Him when we utter the words of our prayers. But the converse is also true. Praying actualizes and deepens our communion of being with God. Our praying can and should arise, above all, from our heart, from our needs, our hopes, our joys, our sufferings, from our shame over sin, and from our gratitude for the good. It can and should be a holy, personal prayer. But we also constantly need to make use of those prayers that express in words the encounter with God experienced both by the church as a whole and by the individual members of the church. For without these aids to prayer, our own praying and our image of God become subjective and end up reflecting ourselves more than the living God. In the formulaic prayers that arose first from the faith of Israel and then from the faith of praying members of the church, we get to know God and ourselves as well. They are the school of prayer that transforms and opens our life. In his rule, St. Benedict coined the formula, Our mind must be in accord with our voice. Normally, thought precedes word. It seeks and formulates the word. But praying the Psalms and liturgical prayer in general is exactly the other way around. The word, the voice, goes ahead of us and our mind must adapt to it. For on our own, we human beings do not know how to pray as we ought. We are too far removed from God. He is too mysterious and too great for us. And so God has to come to our aid. He himself provides the words of our prayer and teaches us to pray. Through the prayers that come from Him, He enables us to set out towards Him. By praying together with the brothers and sisters He has given us, we gradually come to know Him and draw closer to Him. While Matthew introduces the Our Father with a short catechesis on prayer in general, we find that in a different context in Luke, namely Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, Luke prefaces the Lord's Prayer with the following remark, Jesus was praying at a certain place, and when he ceased, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. The fact that Luke places the Our Father in the context of Jesus' own praying is therefore significant. Jesus thereby involves us in his own prayer. He leads us into the interior dialogue of triune love. He draws our human hardships deep into God's heart, as it were. This also means, however, that the words of the Our Father are signposts to interior prayer. They provide a basic direction for our being, and they aim to configure us to the image of the Son. The meaning of the Our Father goes much further than the mere provision of a prayer text. It aims to form our being, to train us in the inner attitude of Jesus. 
The great men and women of prayer throughout the centuries were privileged to receive an interior union with the Lord that enabled them to descend into the depths beyond the Word. They are therefore able to unlock for us the hidden treasure of prayer. And we may be sure that each of us, along with our totally personal relationship with God, is received into and sheltered within this prayer. Again and again, each one of us, with his own spirit, must go out to meet, open himself to, and submit to the guidance of the Word that comes to us from the Son of God. In this way, his own heart will be opened, and each individual will learn the particular way in which the Lord wants to pray with him. The Our Father, then, like the Ten Commandments, begins by establishing the primacy of God, which then leads naturally to a consideration of the right way of being human. Here, too, the primary concern is the path of love, which is at the same time a path of conversion. If man is to petition God in the right way, he must stand in the truth. And the truth is, first God, first his kingdom. The first thing we must do is step outside ourselves and open ourselves to God. Nothing can turn out right if our relation to God is not rightly ordered. For this reason, the Our Father begins with God, and then, from that starting point, shows us the way towards being human. At the end, we descend to the ultimate threat besetting man, for whom the evil one lies in wait. We may recall the image of the apocalyptic dragon that wages war against those who, quote, keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus, unquote. Yet, the beginning remains present throughout, our Father. We know that he is with us to hold us in his hand and save us. The Pope continues, We pray to the Father in heaven, whom we know through his Son. And that means that Jesus is always in the background during the petitions, as we will see in the course of our detailed exposition of the prayer. And the final point, because the Our Father is a prayer of Jesus, it is a Trinitarian prayer. We pray with Christ through the Holy Spirit to the Father. It is true, of course, that contemporary men and women have difficulty experiencing the great consolation of the word Father immediately, since the experience of the Father is in many cases either completely absent or obscured by inadequate examples of fatherhood. We must therefore let Jesus teach us what Father really means. In Jesus' discourses, the Father appears as the source of all good, as the measure of the rectitude, perfection of man. Quote, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Unquote. Let us consider a further text as well. The Lord reminds us that fathers do not give their children stones when they ask for bread. He then goes to say, quote, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Unquote. Luke specifies the good gifts that the Father gives. He says, quote, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Unquote. This means that the gift of God is God Himself. The good things that He gives are Himself. This reveals in a surprising way what prayer is really all about. 
It is not about this or that, but about God's desire to offer us the gift of himself. That is, the gift of all gifts, the one thing necessary. Prayer is a way of gradually purifying and correcting our wishes and slowly coming to realize what we really need, God and His Spirit. The Our Father does not project a human image onto heaven, but shows us from heaven, from Jesus, what we as human beings can and should be like. Now, however, we must look even more closely because we need to realize that, according to Jesus' message, there are two sides of God's fatherhood for us to see. First of all, God is our Father in the sense that He is our Creator. We belong to Him because He has created us. Being, as such, comes from Him and is consequently good. It derives from God. This is especially true of human beings. Psalm 33:15 says in the Latin translation, He who has fashioned the hearts of us all considers all their works. The idea that God has created each individual human being is essential to the Bible's image of man. Every human being is unique and willed as such by God. Every individual is known to him. In this sense, by virtue of creation itself, man is the child of God in a special way, and God is his true father. To describe man as God's image is another way of expressing this idea. Pope Benedict continues, This brings us to the second dimension of God's fatherhood. There is a unique sense in which Christ is the image of God. The fathers of the church therefore say that when God created man in his image, he looked towards the Christ who was to come and created man according to the image of the new Adam, the man who is the criterion of the human. Above all, though, Jesus is the Son in the strict sense. He is of one substance with the Father. He wants to draw all of us into his humanity and so into his sonship, into his total belonging to God. This gives the concept of being God's children a dynamic quality. We are not ready-made children of God from the start, but we are meant to become so increasingly by growing more and more deeply in communion with Jesus. Our sonship turns out to be identical with following Christ. To name God as Father thus becomes a summons to us to live as a child, as a son or daughter. Quote, All that is mine is thine, unquote. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer to the Father. And the Father says the same thing to the elder brother of the prodigal son. The word Father is an invitation to live from our awareness of this reality. Skipping ahead, the Pope continues, One last question remains. Is God also mother? The Bible does compare God's love with the love of a mother, quoting, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, unquote. Also, quote, Can a woman forget her suckling child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Unquote. The mystery of God's maternal love is expressed with particular power in the Hebrew word rahamim. This word means womb, but it was later used to mean divine compassion for man, God's mercy. 
The Old Testament constantly uses the names of organs of the human body to describe basic human attitudes or inner dispositions of God, just as today we use heart or brain when referring to some aspect of our own existence. In this way, the Old Testament portrays the basic attitudes of our existence not with abstract concepts, but in the image and language of the body. The womb is the most concrete expression for the intimate interrelatedness of two lives and of loving concern for the dependent, helpless creature whose whole being, body, and soul nestles in the mother's womb. The image language of the body furnishes us, then, with a deeper understanding of God's disposition towards man than any conceptual language could. Although this use of language derived from man's bodiliness inscribes motherly love to the image of God, it is nonetheless also true that God is never named or addressed as mother, either in the Old or New Testament. Mother in the Bible is an image, but not the title of God. Why not? We can only tentatively seek to understand. Of course, God is neither man nor a woman, but simply God, the creator of man and woman. The mother deities that completely surround the people of Israel and the New Testament church create a picture of the relation between God and the world that is completely opposed to the biblical image of God. By contrast, the image of the Father was and is apt for expressing the otherness of creator and creature and the sovereignty of his creative act. Only by excluding the mother deities could the Old Testament bring its image of God the pure transcendence of God, to maturity. But even if we cannot provide any absolute compelling arguments, the prayer language of the entire Bible remains normative for us, in which, as we have seen, while there are some fine images of maternal love, mother is not used as a title or a form of address for God. We make our petitions in the way that Jesus, with the Holy Scripture and the background, taught us to pray, and not as we happen to think or want. Pope Benedict continues, Finally, we need to consider the word are. Jesus alone was fully entitled to say, My Father, because he alone is truly God's only begotten Son, one of substance with the Father. By contrast, the rest of us have to say, Our Father. Only within the we of the disciples can we call God Father because only through communion with Jesus Christ do we truly become children of God. In this sense, the word are is really rather demanding. It requires that we step out of the closed circle of our I. It requires that we surrender ourselves to communion with the other children of God. It requires, then, that we strip ourselves of what merely is our own, of what divides. It requires that we accept the other, the others, that we open up our ear and our heart to them. When we say the word are, we say yes to the living church in which the Lord wanted us to gather his new family. In this sense, the Our Father is at once a fully personal and thoroughly ecclesial prayer. In praying the Our Father, we pray totally with our heart, but at the same time we pray in communion with the whole family of God, with the living and the dead, with men of all conditions, cultures, and races, the Our Father overcomes all boundaries and makes us one family. The word are also gives us the key to understanding the words that come next, who art in heaven. 
with these words, we are not pushing God the Father away to some distant planet. Rather, we are testifying to the fact that while we have different earthly fathers, we all come from one single Father who is the measure and source of all fatherhood. As St. Paul says, quote, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. Unquote. In the background, we hear the Lord himself speaking, quote, Call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Unquote. God's fatherhood is more real than human fatherhood because he is the ultimate source of our being, because he has thought and willed us from all eternity because he gives us our true paternal home, which is eternal. And if earthly fatherhood divides, heavenly fatherhood unites. Heaven then means that other divine summit from which we all come and to which we are all meant to return. The fatherhood that is in heaven points us to the greater we that transcends all boundaries, breaks down all walls, and creates peace. Again, just to make sure that you understand, you are listening to some excerpts from Pope Benedict's first book of Jesus of Nazareth. I have skipped over wide swaths of what he had to say, so we are not hearing this as a continuous piece of dialogue from the Pope. I do strongly suggest you get a copy of the book at your local Catholic bookstore. Go online. It's also available to be read on a Kindle or other Android device, and you can read it yourself. It is all broken down into separate chapters. I am, again, I won't say I'm cherry-picking. I'm going through and trying to find some things that I can actually get done in this period of time that make some sense. So, in that sense, I am being a little bit editorial in my selection. We are not going to get through the entire Our Father in this particular show. I would love to do that, but this is really what's well, a major portion of the book, and it's something that really is worth taking a look at and reading carefully. Let's continue a bit more, though. Hallowed be thy name. The first petition of the Father reminds us of Thou shalt not speak the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But what is that name of God? When we speak of God's name, we, we see in our mind's eye the picture of Moses in the desert holding a thorn bush that burns but is not consumed. At first, it's a curiosity that prompts him to go and take a closer look at this mysterious sight. But then a voice calls to him from out of the bush, and the voice says to him, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This God sends Moses back to Egypt with the task of leading the people of Israel out of that country to the promised land. Moses is charged with demanding in the name of God that Pharaoh let Israel go. But in the world of Moses' time, there were many gods. Moses, therefore, asked the name of this God that will prove his special authority. In this respect, the idea of the divine name belongs first of all to the polytheistic world in which this God, too, has to give himself a name. But the God who calls Moses is truly God, and God in the strict sense and true sense is not plural. God is, by essence, one. For this reason, he cannot enter into the world of the gods as one among many. He cannot have one name among others. God's answer to Moses is thus once a refusal and a pledge. He says of himself simply, I am who I am. He is without any qualification. This pledge is a name and a non-name at one and the same time. 
The Israelites were therefore perfectly right in refusing to utter this self-designation of God, expressed in the word YHWH, so as to avoid degrading it to the level of names of pagan deities. By the same token, recent Bible translations were wrong to write out this name, which Israel always regarded as mysterious and unutterable, as if it were just any old name. By doing so, they have dragged the mystery of God, which cannot be captured in images or in names lips can utter, down to the level of some familiar item within a common history of religions. It remains true, of course, that God did not simply refuse Moses' request. If we want to understand this curious interplay between name and non-name, we have to be clear about what a name actually is. We could put it very simply by saying that the name creates the possibility of address or invocation. It establishes relationship. When Adam names the animals, what this means is not that he indicates their essential natures, but that he fits them into his human world, puts them within the reach of his call. Having said this, we are now in a position to understand the positive meaning of the divine name. God establishes a relationship between himself and us. He puts himself within reach of our invocation. He enters into a relationship with us and enables us to be in relationship with him. Yet this means that in some sense he hands himself over to our human world. He has made himself accessible and therefore vulnerable as well. He assumed the risk of relationship, of communion with us. The process that was brought to completion in the Incarnation had begun with the giving of the divine name. When we come to consider Jesus' high priestly prayer, in fact, we will see that he represents himself there as the new Moses, quote, I have manifested thy name to men, unquote. What began as the burning bush in the Sinai desert comes to fulfillment at the burning bush of the cross. God has now truly made himself accessible in his incarnate Son. He has become part of the world. He has, as it were, put himself into our hands. This enables us to understand what the petition for the sanctification of the divine name means. The name of God can now be misused, and so God himself can be sullied, the name of God can be co-opted for our purposes, and so the image of God can also be distorted. The more he gives himself to our hands, the more we can obscure his light. The closer he is, the more our misuse can disfigure him. Martin Buber once said that when we consider all the ways in which God's name has been so shamefully misused, we almost despair of uttering it ourselves. But to keep it silent, would be an outright refusal of the love with which God has come to us. Buber says that our only recourse is to try as reverently as possible to pick up and purify the polluted fragments of the divine name. But there is no way we can do that alone. All we can do is plead with him not to allow the light of his name to be destroyed in this world. Jumping ahead, let me move over to the Pope's reflections on Thy Kingdom Come. In connection with the petition for God's kingdom, we recall all our earlier considerations concerning the term kingdom of God. With this petition, we are acknowledging first and foremost the primacy of God. Where God is absent, nothing can be good. Where God is not seen, man and the world fall to ruin. This is what the Lord means when he says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. 
These words establish an order of priorities for human action for how we approach everyday life. This is not a promise that we will enter the land of plenty on condition that we are devout or that we are somehow attracted to the kingdom of God. This is not an automatic formula for a well-functioning world, not a utopian vision of a classless society in which everything works out well in its own accord, simply because there is no private property. Jesus does not give us such simple recipes. What he does do, though, as we saw earlier, is to establish an absolutely decisive priority. For the kingdom of God means dominion of God, and this means that his will is accepted as the true criterion. His will establishes justice, and part of justice is that we give God his just due, and in doing so, discover the criterion for what is justly due among men. The order of priorities that Jesus indicates for us here may remind us of the Old Testament account of Solomon's first prayer after his accession to office. The story goes that the Lord appeared to the young king in a dream at night and gave him leave to make a request that the Lord promised to grant, a classic dream motif of mankind. What does Solomon ask for? Quote, Give thy servant, therefore, a listening heart to govern thy people, that I may discern between good and evil. God praises him because instead of asking for wealth or fortune, honor or death of his enemies, or even long life, tempting as it would have been, he asks for the truly essential thing, a listening heart, the ability to discern between good and evil. And for this reason, Solomon received those other things as well. With the petition, Thy kingdom come, not our kingdom, the Lord wants to show us how to pray and order our action in just this way. The first and essential thing is a listening heart, so that God, not we, may reign. The kingdom of God comes by the way of a listening heart. That is its path, and that is what we must pray for again and again. The encounter with Christ makes this petition even deeper and more concrete. We have seen that Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. The kingdom of God is present wherever he is present. By the same token, the request for a listening heart becomes a request for communion with Jesus Christ, the petition that we increasingly become one with him. What is requested in this petition is the true following of Christ, which becomes communion with him and makes us one body with him. Reinhold Schneider has expressed this powerfully. The life of this kingdom is Christ's continuing life in those who are his own. In the heart that is no longer nourished by the vital power of Christ, the kingdom ends. In the heart that is touched and transformed by it, the kingdom begins. The roots of the indestructible tree seek to penetrate into each heart. The kingdom is one. It exists solely through the Lord, who is its life, its strength, and its center. To pray for the kingdom of God is to say to Jesus, Let us be yours, Lord. Pervade us. Live in us. Gather scattered humanity in your body, so that in you everything may be subordinated to God, and you can then hand over the universe to the Father, in order that God may be all in all. Again, you've been listening to excerpts of Pope Benedict's first book from 2006, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, I have skipped over many, many parts. I would suggest you take a look for yourself and see what you can see. I apologize for any mispronunciations I may have done. It does seem 
unfortunate that we only talk about part of the Lord's Prayer and not do the whole thing. So I'm going to take a quick break, and we will leave the Lord's Prayer in better hands than mine. And let us pray then as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. This hour you've been listening to excerpts from Pope Benedict's book on Jesus of Nazareth. If you have an interest in hearing more voices, of hearing things that perhaps take a different take on what you've ever thought about, not the same old, same old things that maybe you just repeat over and over again, I really do invite you to go to the Diocese of La Crosse website, D-I-O-L-C dot org. There are so many things there that you can click on and listen to, click on and watch, click on and read about that may even give you some extra things to think about. One of the things that is going on, which I do strongly suggest, and it doesn't cost you a dime, is a number of courses that you could watch. You can you don't really participate in them. It isn't back and forth. They're not live. But you can hear lectures and talks that are very inspiring from Franciscan University at Steubenville. Through a very special accommodation with Franciscan University, the Diocese of La Crosse has established a ability, courtesy of each individual parish, to log in via your parish and, at no charge to you, spend time looking at a variety of inspiring talks. If you got some interesting thoughts from this, believe me, you'll get plenty from them as well. And also, the bishop's blog, the, all the homilies that are there, all these things that are up there for you to enjoy. Uh, it's a fantastic compendium of good thinking and ways to kind of uh, basically just think more about the kind of things that, that the Hope was talking about in this reading I've been doing. So again, this is all free. You are members of the Diocese of La Crosse. You sign in via your parish if you're going to go to the Franciscan University items. Everything else, you just go and look at it. And don't forget also, if you have a prayer petition, there's a place there for you to write it in and send it in. You can do it anonymously if you wish, and I can guarantee you that Bishop Callahan will look at it. All this at D-I-O-L-C dot org. Again, thanks so much for tuning in, Connecting the Diocese. Hope you enjoyed hearing this as much as I did exploring it as well. We'll catch you next week on Connecting the Diocese.